Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, OEF founder and your host in this episode of the Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Pete Salvo Benning. Pete was born and raised in New Guinea, where his parents were missionaries. After graduating from high school, Pete moved back to the U.S. where he spent a couple of years as a ski instructor and doing odd jobs. He applied to the U.S. Naval Academy and was initially rejected, but was afforded the opportunity to attend the Naval Academy Prep School in Newport, Rhode Island. Pete would eventually make his way to Annapolis as a midshipman and was commissioned as a Marine officer upon his Naval Academy graduation in 2004. In the two decades since, Pete has actively led and served in an array of capacities as a combat aviator, an instructor at the Naval Academy, a business development leader in the private sector, at home, as a husband, an active father, and in his church and community. Though we just missed each other at the Naval Academy, Pete and I would wind up in the same reserve unit much later in our Marine careers. He recently sent me a selfie of him sporting an LUF Humanizing Narrative t-shirt And though he didn't intend to volunteer himself as a featured guest, it hit me that our listening audience would benefit from his perspective. Fair to say that Pete Benning has spent a lot of time contemplating leadership and humor performance in lethal, mission-oriented settings. Lieutenant Colonel Benning, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your very full schedule for this conversation. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. It's uh, something that I never expected. I'm really excited to be here, and thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, it's pretty cool. This is your first time as a featured podcast guest, correct? It is. Yeah, I, I never really sort of pictured myself as podcast material, but uh, so it is my first time. Well, your pedigree certainly is, and uh, your humility speaks volumes about the quiet professional that you that you are. And uh, we're honored that given this is your your first foray into podcast as a guest that we have you on the Leadership Under Fire Humanizing the Narrative podcast. So we'll start the conversation today. When did you know you wanted to attend the Naval Academy and why? That's a, that's a really good question. You know, growing up in New Guinea, my dad had uh, been to Vietnam uh, when he was when he was really young, uh, 19 and 20, and uh, served in the army. You know, I think growing up overseas, like America always kind of held this mystique for me, you know, growing up in a third world country and in different cultures away from from America, it became apparent to me that America is unlike any place in the world um, and throughout history, a land truly blessed and created by God for freedom. And so I thought, you know, I'd like to be a part of that. And the military always kind of held uh, as well a mystique for me, you know, kind of like a a high bar. And I was always kind of interested in it. And it was, it was interesting because my dad definitely never pushed me towards it. He he almost kind of steered me away from it because of what he experienced post-Vietnam, the, uh, you know, the vitriol and, um, and things ex- that he experienced uh, as a young man in the culture. And so I would read books kind of growing up and especially in high school, you know, about the military and different things. And one that I read about um, Navy SEALs in Vietnam really intrigued me. 
you know, as my dad described the Vietnam experience and what I heard from others is, you know, that, that they weren't really sure who the enemy was and they were always kind of a, uh, sort of on their heels, it seemed like in the face of the enemy and the books that I read about the Navy SEALs were the enemy was scared of them, you know, because of their training, because of their aggressiveness, because of the way that they operated. And I thought, man, that's, that's what I would want to be. I'd want to be the best trained, the best equipped, get the best missions and have, you know, the best chance at success and to make it back again. And so, you know, as I sort of expressed this interest to my dad, he said, well, you know, if you are really interested in the military, the the best thing that you can probably do for yourself is to pursue the officer route. So in my lightning fast peanut brain, I kind of thought, well, the the only way to become an officer is to to go to an academy. Um, and so I thought, well, if I want to be a Navy SEAL, I'd better, better go to the Naval Academy. And so that's what sort of started me uh, on the trajectory to the Naval Academy. And I, um, you know, became really excited about it. And, uh, and applied and was promptly rejected. And so, so I thought, oh man, you know, I'll just keep trying until they, you know, until they say that I'm too old. So I, you know, in my mind, I was like, you know, I'm just going to keep trying to get in until they tell me that I can't apply anymore. And so I only ever applied to that one school. Um, and so I was really thankful, you know, God provided me the opportunity to go to NAPS. You know, I got this call and I was like, okay, hey, what's NAPS? They're like, well, it's the prep school. And if you, you know, survive, then, you know, we'll give you an appointment to the Naval Academy. So I thought, oh, that's fantastic. And so that kind of started my trajectory along towards the Naval Academy. Very cool. And it's certainly an, a unique background, per se, having spent much of your, your childhood over, overseas. There's, of course, uh, a number of midshipmen that are probably similar in that regard because their parents are, are diplomats or career military officers. But I would mm. I would venture to say it still constitutes a very small percentage of uh, Naval Academy individuals who attend the Naval Academy. So you do a year at, at NAPS, you transition to the Naval Academy at Annapolis. How, how would you describe your your time there, particularly given the, the fact that this is pretty much exclusively what what you wanted to do? And then how would you describe your time and when and why? Did you know that you wanted to become a Marine officer, or, you know, given that you had set out to become a SEAL? That's a, a really good question, too. I uh, I think whenever I, I first got there to NAPS and subsequently to the Academy, it really kind of like confused me, the attitudes of some of the other midshipmen, because they they were kind of like, oh, you know, why is this and why is that? And this wasn't in the brochure. And why do I really have to be here? And I was like, man, I was like there was 10 other kids that wanted to be in your spot. You know, it's like, I was one of them, you know, and, and you just got accepted here because you're an athlete or because, you know, whatever it is, and you don't even really want to be here. Um, and it kind of made me mad, you know, because I was like, you, you don't even understand the opportunity that you have and that, you, you know, you just walked into and now you don't want it. And, and so I was kind of frustrated, to be honest, by some, some of my uh, classmates. And I can say that I, I really... I really liked it. And I was really, really thankful for the opportunity. There's hard days everywhere, you know, and there was days when I was like, man, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it, you know, and especially in the major that I chose, one of the engineering majors, and, and I ended up failing one of the classes in, in the matrix there. And it was kind of like, I, you know, just a lot of prayer and, you know, asking <laughs> God to, God to help me get through. And he did. But I, I would say that, I really was thankful for the opportunity and and for the most part, really enjoyed being there and the people that I met, you know, the, the instruction that I received, I think, you know, to that point, I think the defining moments 
and really like experiences, I guess it wasn't a moment, but um, experiences that moved me from wanting to be a Navy SEAL to being a Marine is I had a company officer who was a SEAL. And in that same company, my company senior enlisted was a Marine gunny. And the um, the company officer was, he was not a great leader. He was um, really self-centered and it was very clear. Um, and, and through one of the evolutions that we had, I, so within the company, I was uh, one of the senior second class. I, I was the company first sergeant uh, at the time as, as a second class uh, a junior there at the academy in in the company and then i took part in the uh the mini bud screener which was a um an evolution to kind of uh call the number of midshipmen that would go take summer training out at coronado uh with the seals and so they would run two of these screeners a year and kind of try to weed out those that um you know didn't really want to be there and so it was in the middle of this screener and we're standing there on the dock and he is the OIC for the little phase there of the screener. And he's going by and he's looking at people and, you know, kind of, you know, honcho in that, that section of the screener. And he looks at me and he kind of walks by and then he comes back and he looks at me and he looks at my name tag and he looks back at me and he goes, what company are you in? And I was like, you know, if, if I was just like some guy that hid in a hole someplace in the company and, you know, played video games in my room, I, I might've understood, but like, I was the company first sergeant, you know, I was like, how do you not know who I am? So conversely, Gunny knew everything about everybody yeah. in that company, what they were deficient at, what they were good at, what sports they were playing, what their grades were. Um, he was there all the time and taking care of us and making sure that we had everything that we wanted and needed, not wanted, but everything that we needed, um, you know, whether that was, you know, some good advice or a swift kick in the butt you know, he was there and he, he, he was kind of, uh, during our summer training from, from our so uh, freshman year into the sophomore year, he was there, uh, as kind of the, the lead enlisted for one of the training evolutions. And it was like, the evolution was over. It was a three week evolution and he was there and the evolution was over. He's like, all right, you know, everybody go on, you know, to your next training evolution, wherever it was, you know, whether people were going home or, you know, onto their next ship or whatever. And it's like, everybody it wasn't even requested or anything every single midshipman lined up to shake his hand it was he didn't ask he, he was just standing there he's like all right everybody go and it's like everybody got in a line and to come shake gunny's hand because he was that good of a leader and i was like if the marine corps produces people like that i want to be a part of that kind of organization and and it's just mm -hmm. like a bunch of the other marines that i saw around the yard were just that caliber of people and, and so I thought, well, you know, here, here's a Navy SEAL officer, you know, and here's a Marine senior enlisted. And it's like, I want the job of this one over here, but this kind of leader and this kind of person is who I want to be and who the type of people that I want to be with. And so that was kind of, you know, a moment and an experience in my life where, where the Marine Corps really, you know, came to the surface for me. To be honest, whenever I went to NAPS and came to the academy, I didn't even know Marines could commission from the Naval Academy. I had no idea. And uh, and so it was kind of through that experience that that the Marine Corps became like a, a really viable option to me and, and something that, you know, I began to seek out. Through the rest of my Naval Academy career, you know, I, I kind of still pursued both paths. And, um, you know, I prayed a lot about it. You know, I didn't know, you know, which path God would have for me. 
And so I did everything that I would need to be selected as a, as a SEAL candidate. And I, uh, you know, they, they brought us all into a room and they said, okay, we're going to read off the names of those that are selected uh, as SEAL candidates. And so I was just praying. I was like, you know, basically, God, if my name isn't on that list, then I know you want me to be a Marine. And so they read off the 16 names and my name wasn't one of them. And so I was like, there's my answer. And so, you know, selected, uh, selected Marine Corps and haven't looked back. Yeah. What a, I know that was a long answer. No, what a great, what a great story. Who, who was the gunny, by the way? Uh, his name was uh, Gunny Cop, and incidentally, whenever I transitioned to to HMX One later in my career, he was the sergeant major at HMX One. Really? So I ran back into oh, that's, him. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, uh, it was fantastic. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, it just hit me too that you know our our nation underwent a, a significant transition during your time at the Naval Academy. So you arrived pre nine eleven. You were a midshipman on the morning of September eleventh, two thousand and one. Uh, by the time you graduate and commission our, our nation would be at war initially, you know, one theater and then, then two, but what was the nine 11 experience like as a, as a young midshipman who was, you know, on a, on a path to, to lead and to serve as an officer? You know, for me, I, I remember exactly where I was, uh, what class I was in, you know, when, when we got the news, it was kind of surreal at that point. It was, it was like, you know, what's, what's really going on, what's happening, you know, school uh, shut down for a couple of days, you know, and it was primarily like, you know, who has family in the city, you know, who, who has family that's nearby, you know, all of the, you know, the cell phone, you know, technology then was, was still a little bit limited. You know, the signals were all jammed up because so many people were trying to call, you know, people couldn't get calls in and out of the city. Um, and so it was just like, you know, people for a while, like really trying to see if they, you know, had family that were missing or, injured or, or, uh, killed or anything. And, and so it was kind of just like surrounding those people there for, for the few, first few days. And then beyond that, it was like seeing the things change, you know, as far as the force protection and, you know, the Marines at the gates with bigger weapons and, you know, those kinds of things. And then just sort of witnessing those changes. But I think as far as for me, it, it was like, you know, nothing, nothing changed as far as my focus or, or what I thought that I was going to be doing. You know, it's like, I, I had joined to serve, you know, I joined to, you know, to be a part of, of America and to fight. And so I just, I thought, well, here it is, here's the fight, you know, we're getting ready to go and, and make sure that, you know, this doesn't happen again. So in some ways I wasn't really mature enough to recognize all of the implications. Mm -hmm. And then in other ways, I think that I, in my mind, I was like, this is what, what I'm preparing for, you know, and, and I'm getting ready to go to, you know, so it didn't change anything in my mind in that way. I think if that makes sense. Sure. Just, I mean, just further reinforce your focus. Yes, sir. So upon graduation and your commission as Marine second Lieutenant, you attend the basic school following the basic school in Quantico, you would proceed on to flight school. How, and when did you, did you know that you wanted to be a Marine aviator? Yeah, that was interesting for me because, you know, a lot of people have asked, well, you know, you wanted to be a SEAL. Like, why why didn't you go Marine infantry? I think really because, you know, the Lord knew that that I wouldn't be a very good infantry officer. I was, uh, I think, in a lot of ways, very immature and very self-centered. And, you know, I didn't really understand what it what it meant to be a Marine officer and a Marine infantry officer, you know, I thought I did. I thought I understood what leadership was. I thought I understood 
a lot of different things, but really looking back on how naive and immature I was, I wouldn't have made a good infantry officer. And so in my 24 year old brain or 25 year old brain, I thought, you know, how do I, I thought, well, how do I want to serve? You know, and I, my dad, uh, had been a pilot his whole life. Um, you know, he was a bush pilot in New Guinea and, you know, and he loves aviation. And, and I thought, you know, I never, I never really wanted to be a pilot because I didn't ever think that I could be a pilot to the level that he was, you know, but there was always something about aviation that interested me. And I thought, I don't want to be on the ground as a Marine kind of just being, you know, administratively there, you know, making sure that, you know, whatever sphere I was in there on the ground was, was working well. I thought, you know, I want to be in the air. I want to be able to, to take Marines to and from a fight or while they're in a fight, be able to directly affect, you know, what's going on on the ground. And so I think that it was in terms of like the way that I looked at how I wanted to be in the battle. You know, I thought I don't want to just, you know, because as a SEAL, I thought, well, I'm going to be on the very pointy, pointy end of the spear, you know, operating in a, in a small team. And I don't want to be on the ground with like a large team, you know, in, in like a large infantry combat situation. And so I thought, hey, I want to be in the air where I can have a more direct effect. And I don't really think that that's correct now, but from my thinking then, that's what I thought. Sure. And so... Um, so I thought that aviation might be a really good way to be able to affect the battle space in, in a, in a large way. And so I think that's why I chose aviation. And it, again, I think, I think that it really worked out well for me because I, I think I really lacked the maturity to be a Marine ground officer, not to say that, you know, pilots are immature, but I, I just would not have been a good infantry officer because of the way that my mind was at that time in my life. Did you have a flight contract when you arrived at TBS? Yes, yes, I did. So I I got a I got my flight contract at the academy. I selected marine aviation uh, when I commissioned. Okay, so for the duration of the basic school, you know that you're you're about for flight school. What was flight school like? It was really challenging uh, in some ways, and then in in other ways, it was it was really interesting because. You know, having come from TBS, you know, where where everything is Marine centric, you know, and and it's like it's all about the young Marine and being able to lead that Marine and being able to get that Marine what they need to be able to function and succeed. Flight school is very focused. It's it's very Navy focused because it's a Navy flight school and it's focused on you training to do your job, um, which is which is fly the airplane. And so you know, kind of a lot of big boy rules in terms of, you know, Navy flight school when I went through was just like a big sausage machine, you know, and it's like, they're just turning the crank and it's like, you get your stack of books and, you know, you, you have your schedule and your flights and it's like, you, you get a couple of chances and if you don't make it, you know, there's the door. And so for me, it was kind of like, um, like a, a big wake up call. Like I never studied as hard at the Academy as I did at flight school. Um, like I, I remember, you know, coming home from a day of classes and being like, okay, I grabbed some dinner and I studied, would study for about four hours straight, just like making note cards and memorizing things. And, and then, you know, you go and you just, the next day, it's the same thing, just day after day after day, just kind of in that, that study mode. But, you know, your time is largely your own, you know, if, if you don't study, you're going to fail out, you know, but when you're, when you're not studying, it, it was kind of a little bit of an open environment, you know, we go to the beach and hang out and 
kind of just wait for, for Monday to roll again and study up and do your flights and stuff like that. So it was a really good time to kind of grow up, you know, in terms of, you know, the responsibilities really on you coming out of the academy where, yeah, you're responsible so, so for your grades and stuff, but yeah. So far less structure. It, it, yes. it sounds like a flight school, the nerds at the Naval Academy, where there's just an inordinate amount of structure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. You know, beyond the scope of your uh, your studies, were there any obstacles that you you, you encountered uh, that you anticipated or didn't anticipate and, and would need to overcome? Well, I got married uh, in flight school. So that <laughs> that was that was definitely something that, you know, I, I don't think that I anticipated and, you know, definitely is an additional challenge just to try to, you know, begin a family and, and kind of work that into a, uh, an environment where, you know, it's pass or fail to my wife's credit. She's amazing. She kind of, um, you know, understood that I think even more than I did. And she was very supportive and very helpful in, uh, you know, so much more mature than I was and, and kind of understood how to be that supportive wife, even though we had just, uh, come together, we met in like eight months later, we were married. Okay. Um, so it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty rapid, but you know, she was amazing. And so I couldn't let her go. Awesome. But, you know, obviously as a son of a pilot, you would had probably considerably more exposure to aviation than many of your classmates, but did like, you know, from a kind of a physical, technical, mental perspective, did flying feel like you thought it might? Yeah. You know, I, I've been up a lot of times with my dad, you know, and he, um, you know, being a, a really good pilot and a good instructor, you know, had, had taught me a few things and just, you know, understanding, you know, basic mechanics and, you know, things that I'd learned at the Naval Academy as far as, um, you know, in engineering and things like that, I think gave me a pretty good background. So a lot of the concepts, you know, from the books and everything like that were not, I think, were easier for me to understand um, a lot of the mechanical aspects and, and things like that. But, you know, just the the volume of stuff that you have to memorize and know, I think kind of overwhelms some people. And and it was overwhelming to me, especially in, uh, you know, advanced in helicopter training, you know, with all of the stuff that you had to know for every flight, I think was just the volume of stuff was, was kind of overwhelming. Yeah. It's, it sounds like, you know, quite an extensive amount of material. So I'm curious, I mean, clearly there's a lot of attention given to the mechanical aspects of, of aviation, as you alluded to how much attention was given to uh, explicitly given to human factors when you went through flight school? Oh yeah. Um, so that's, I think one of the things that, that um, Naval aviation kind of grew in leaps and bounds, um, especially early on, you know, from world war two on, like they, you know, if you, if you go back to world war two and look at some of the studies, they lost so many aircraft just to human factors, you know, some of those, technology and navigation and all those kinds of things but it's like by the time i got to to naval aviation training like like i said it's a sausage machine you know they know what works they know how to make it and it produces a good a good product out the end and and a lot of that is understanding the human factors so you cannot be scheduled you know within a certain time frame of your last flight you know you have to have the ability to get eight hours of uninterrupted rest you know because they realize that if you're not sleeping you you mentally can't perform at the level in the aircraft that you need to, um, especially when you're first learning, you know, so they would, they would make sure that you were rested. They make sure that, you know, you weren't under the influence of, you know, alcohol or medication every time before you would go to a flight, you'd sit down and you go through this checklist, 
you know, and you'd say, you know, how tired are you? How much sleep have you gotten? You know, did you take any medication? You know, and, and what is, what is going on in your life right now? Like, um, are your parents okay? Are, you know, is your, you know, your marriage suffering or are your kids well or something like that? You know, because it's like, Hey, if I'm, if I'm thinking about uh, a really serious altercation that I had with my wife and we're, you know, on the rocks, like I'm not going to be focused in the aircraft. And so the instructors were really careful about checking for that kind of thing, you know, and understanding that, you know, you as a meat servo in the cockpit need to be a hundred percent on your mental game. And so human factors is a huge part of that. Uh, and then as well as, you know, how does your equipment fit? You know, they would tell us, Hey, you know, when you get your helmet, go home and wear it for an hour, just in your house, you know, wear it for an hour and a half. Does it hurt? You know, if it hurts, like, you know, figure out what's hurting and come back and have it refitted, you know, because if something is hurting on the ground, it's going to be 10 times worse in the air and you'll get sick and sure. start throwing up. And so, yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff, um, a lot of attention to, to human factors. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that insight just reinforces like how progressive I, sh I share with folks commonly, we're talking about human factors, human performance, that from my perspective, aviation, both military and commercial has, has, you know, has been at the vanguard of, uh, particularly human factors uh you know you reference sleep hygiene you reference fatigue you reference ergonomics you know all, all of these topics which you know in recent years have started to gain traction and attention and consideration in the ground combat community uh more recently the, the fire service but recently we're, we're, we're talking about you you went through flight school almost 20 years ago at a time that was you know rather uh the, the wars we didn't know at the time but they were they were pretty much in their in their infancy. So I appreciate that perspective. So upon completion of flight school in October, 2006, how, how did you decide which platform you wanted to, to fly and, and why? So that, that was kind of like, you know, up to this point in my life, you know, having made it into Naval Academy, chosen to be a Marine and then a pilot, like those are probably about like, what's that three or four choices that I've had, you know, my career up to this point. And so this next big one was like, hey, you know, what, uh, what platform do you want to fly? Coming out of primary, uh, I chose helicopters, you know, because I wanted to be close to the fight. You know, I didn't want to be in a C-130 kind of far away, and I didn't want to be in a jet, you know, at, at high altitude. I, I knew that I wanted to be close to the fight, so I picked helicopters. And then, you know, when it came time to, to select, it was like I, I was kind of really on the fence between you know, being a, a Cobra pilot, a Huey pilot, or a 46 pilot. And I wanted to be a Huey pilot because I wanted to be close to the fight, wanted to be able to shoot, but I wanted the crew aspect. I wanted to have, you know, enlisted crew in, in the aircraft that I flew. But at the time, the Huey was the November model, and it was kind of like a fat, slow pig. And, you know, everybody kind of had to slow down for it. And so I kind of didn't want to be that guy. So then I was like, well, Cobra is a, a really, really awesome machine and just, you know, devastating on the battlefield. But then, you know, the 46 has a mission of taking Marines to and from the fight. And I really like that aspect. And as I was uh, exiting flight school, um, the V-22 Osprey was coming online and the whole East Coast was supposed to have transitioned kind of around that time. But they realized that it wasn't coming online fast enough and they were going to need 
um, some East Coast 46 pilots to come in, do one more deployment with a 46 squadron and then transition to the Osprey. And so they offered that at flight school saying, hey, if you choose East Coast 46s, you have the capability to transition to the B-22. And I thought, well, that's a really neat opportunity to be able to fly two fleet aircraft. So um, that's what I went for. And, uh, and so I initially selected uh, East Coast 46s. So that for me was was a really good option. Oh, very cool. Two, two platforms for the price of one. Yeah. So you, you graduate from flight school and then you go to fleet replacement squadron. What was that experience like? Oh, that was, that was a really good experience. So I, um, you know, said, you know, flight school is kind of like a Navy environment. Well, you know, the fleet replacement squadron is like a, you know, back to reality, you're in the Marine Corps. And so I went out to the, uh, the fleet replacement squadron, the FRS, it was uh, HMMT, which stands for helicopter Marine medium training squadron 164. It was out on the West coast in, uh, in Pendleton. And, um, there was some really good, really good folks there. When I got there, my peers, uh, you know, David Batchelor, Jason Laird, um, who are both now Osprey COs, uh, they're currently in their CO tour right now. Um, fantastic guys that, you know, uh, had gotten there a little bit ahead of me and really had, had their eye on the ball. And it was like, Hey, this is how you perform here as a Marine aviator. It was kind of just like big ears, small mouth, work hard and, and listen. And, uh, and yeah, it was a really good experience learning how to fly the 46 from captains that had come, you know, direct from combat in Iraq, you know, running Casavacs and, you know, taking Marines to and from the fight, you know, picking up wounded Marines and, and all those kinds of things. So a lot of combat experience just kind of poured directly into us as we learned how to fly, you know, this fleet aircraft. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a really good experience. Six months out there in, in Pendleton, really, really good experience. And then not to mention that my first, uh, first child, my daughter uh, was born uh, while I was there at Pendleton. So it was, oh, very cool. it was really good, really good experience. Yeah, sounds like a great experience. And the folks that are training you are coming are coming back from Iraq. Pretty dynamic time as as the insurgency is is underway in, in parts of western Iraq, Amber Province, uh, et cetera. Guys are guys are flying in a lot of real yep. world missions of consequence, Kazavaks, you, you you name it. So, you know, you finish up at FRS on the West Coast and then you receive orders to HMM 365, where you would spend your first tour in the fleet as an aviator. Uh, from there, you would deploy to Afghanistan with your squadron on numerous occasions. What were those deployments like? You know, similar to what you had anticipated, different from what you had anticipated, a little bit of both, but what was your your first foray into combat like as a, as a young aviator? You know, so it's so really blessed. I just feel like God's hand has, has been on me, though, you know, everything through what I've mentioned so far, but even... You know, I checked into this squadron, HMN-365, on the, on the East Coast. We were supposed to do a um, a med cruise, you know, just to be part of the MEW and, you know, float around the med and just kind of be ready there in case anything happened. You know, I got there in April of 2007, and we chopped to the MEW, and we were gearing up for it. And it's at that time, uh, you know, kind of in the middle of 2007 through to the end of 2007, you know, things in in Iraq were kind of winded down a little bit. And it was like, you know, uh, things in Afghanistan kind of started to heat up again. And the Marine Corps uh, needed a MAGTAF that was ready to go that could be, you know, brought directly into the fight there um, in the Helmand province. And uh, so 
you know, the Marine Corps kind of looked around and said, who's ready to go? Well, the 24th Mew was, um, you know, pretty much all trained up and we had actually loaded our stuff on the ship and they said, okay, take everything off the ship, put it on C-17s and you're strat lifting to Afghanistan. And um, it was just, you know, extremely fortunate to be able to kind of see the way that the Marine Corps is designed to operate. And it's like, you know, that whole, the whole thing, like, Hey, we're ready. You know, it's, it's not just a slogan, right? It's, you know, when you watch it happen, when it's like, okay, Hey, you know, we are completely pointed in one direction. Everything's on the ship. We're all ready to go. We got our state rooms and, you know, we're ready to have a great, you know, cruise around the med and, you know, help out if need be. It was like, all right, take everything off. And everything came off the ship, loaded all in C-17s, broke all the helicopters down, all the helicopters on C-17s, you know, over to Kandahar, you know, landed in Kandahar, built up the helicopters and, you know, got together with the BLT, uh, you know, the battalion landing team. And it's like, we planned this mission and it's like, I forget, it was like three weeks after we landed in Afghanistan. And it's like, we were supposed to put the, the battalion landing team in to the Garmshire district for like three days. And so it was like, you know, over a period of uh, over eight hours of darkness, you know, we had all the helicopters and we put the Marines in and we left them there for seven months. Well, well, we operated and, and it was just absolutely incredible to see the Marine Corps do what it's supposed to do. And, and it's like the, when we got there, you know, um, was it uh, ISAF, was just kind of being overrun by the Taliban in the area, you know, and, and the ICOM chatter that, that we were picking up whenever we got there was, you know, the enemy was like, Hey, you know, it doesn't matter who comes, we're going to beat everybody. Yeah. The Marines are here, but you know, it's, it's going to be no different than anybody else, but it was extremely different, you know, where everybody else was, was kind of disaggregated and, you know, fighting on their own in these small little pockets with no combined armed support. We brought everything everything you know the the aviation the artillery you know the battalion landing team and it's like we're just just crushing it we just completely overwhelmed the area and uh you know took it back from the enemy kind of just like you read about right it was it was fantastic to be like a, a small part of of that and to really see what the marine corps is good at what it's designed to do and how well it does it it was absolutely fantastic that first deployment only Marines, right? Or, or more broadly, the Navy Marine Corps team can pivot like that, you know, with the speed that we uh, we, we can. But you, you would do three deployments then? Yes. Yeah. So that was that was the first one uh, deployed as a 46 pilot and then came back to the States and we divested of all the 46s and the squadrons began to transition to the V-22 platform. And so... Let's see. So we, we got back yeah, at the end of 08 and into 09. And then uh, we deployed again in the middle of 2010 uh, as an Osprey squadron. So during that time, so we were kind of like the first MAGTAF into Afghanistan there in 08. And then that's when the ramp up in Afghanistan really kind of kicked off. And by the time we got there in 2010, we were the second Osprey deployment into Afghanistan. By then, you know, the uh, the Garmshire area had kind of like, you know, the Taliban had been pushed out of Garmshire and they started to move north. And then the AO started to get warmed up. And, um, you know, the FOS kind of around the area started to become, 
you know, more and more prolific. And by that time, when we came back as an Osprey squadron, largely what we did was PAX mail and cargo runs, uh, you know, around the FOBs. And we didn't, we didn't do as much direct action uh, during that second deployment as an Osprey squadron, just because of the way that the AO was, and then the different helicopter squadrons that were also there. Um, I think we did one or two, you know, named operations where we, you know, would do inserts and extracts for direct Marine action during that second deployment. But uh, then, yeah, during the third deployment, so that, that second deployment, we came back and then we came back for another year. And then we went back again in 2012. And then in 2012, it was like, um, you know, people really understood, you know, how capable a platform the Osprey was and, and how fast it could move around the battlefield, how much it could really bring to the fight. And then that second deployment as an Osprey squadron, which is my third deployment, we were doing named operations almost every night. It felt like we would do 500, 500 Marine inserts, you know, into these, these, uh, battlefields, you know, under the cover of darkness. And then the next night go and pull them back out again. And it was, it was a, um, much more intense deployment, that third deployment, just with the, the environment, the night, the dust, um, the enemy, uh, everything was just stepped up, uh, to a level 10 during that third deployment. And, um, yeah, I'm so thankful to God, I, you know, that we didn't lose anybody. We didn't lose any aircraft. We didn't lose any personnel on that third deployment. It was, it was, um, it was aggressive. Wow. I mean, fair to say you, you accumulated or accrued a significant number of flight hours in Afghanistan over the course of uh, a few, few years there. What, what are some of the biggest challenges, you know, that, that aviators flying in support of ground combat units in, encountered in, in Southern Afghanistan? You know, like a lot of it, you know, the enemy always gets a vote, but I think, you know, in terms of, you know, the enemy that was there and, and the, the different things uh, that we had, you know, we were able to mitigate that quite a bit, you know, in terms of flying low light, you know, where they couldn't see very well, being kind of careful about, you know, the communications that we we'd run and different things like that. For me, uh, as an assault support pilot, you know, somebody that would, you know, have to land you know, typically like as a, as a skid pilot, you know, shooter, you're not really landing, right. You're, you're in the overhead, you're providing, um, fire support and those kinds of things. It's, it's a whole other different thought process, you know, and I can't really speak to that, you know, what they really find challenging, but for assault support, to me, it was always the landing, um, especially in an Osprey because of the downwash that you experience in the fine, uh, dust, the talcum powder dust, um, you know, oftentimes you're blind from about 80 feet to the ground and you can't see a thing. And, um, you know, you're relying on your instrumentation, you're relying on your crew and you're relying on the the imagery that you had beforehand and what you saw right before you went blind. And it's it's kind of always a sweating pucker factor uh, as, as you come towards the ground. You know, I remember one time, one night landing in a field and on the overhead imagery that we had of the landing zone beforehand, it looked like there were these... Um, like ditches uh, in this big green field. And, and so we thought, well, the distances between the ditches were, were pretty large. So we're like, okay, we'll just try to make sure we land between the ditches. And then we landed and it's like the dust kind of clears and they weren't ditches, they were four foot terraces. And so if you had thought, well, I'll just straddle the ditch or I'll, you know, you would have, you would have capsized in your aircraft because wow. you'd be landing on a, on a four foot ditch. And, and there, was, there was no way to know that before getting there. Sometimes you're laying there, you're like, dear God, thank you for 
that I'm not dead, you know, just because yeah. of the landing. So for me, um, the landing was always, always a, a kind of a roll of the dice to, to what was going to happen. No, having, having, you know, spent many evenings um, in, in LZs in Southern Afghanistan, I'll, I'll never forget the feel of being covered from the downwash, you know, on, on pr pretty Spartan patrol bases where, there, there wasn't much in a way of running running water or certainly no shower containers, uh, et cetera. But, you know, to, to think about being in your perspective where you're trying to land this aircraft with very, very limited visibility in an LZ for the first time at night uh, in complex terrain is uh, it's, it's daunting just to just to think about it. Perhaps a, a bit of a loaded, a loaded question, but having flown both 46s and the MV twenty two Ospreys in Afghanistan, which platform did you did you prefer? I uh, I prefer the V twenty two. Okay. Yeah, every day and twice on Sunday. It's just <laughs> a it's just a much more capable aircraft. I mean, there there'll be places where you always need a helicopter, you know, to do helicopter type things. But as far as if you think about, you know, the the Marine Corps, everything is focused around that eighteen year old with a rifle. You know, um, the Marine Corps is focused around getting getting him where he needs to go, what he needs to have to prosecute the the fight to the enemy, and um, and then getting him home again. And so, I guess I always thought of it as you know, if you're not that guy, um, if you if you're not that Marine, then you're in service to that Marine. And so, how hmm. how well do you do your service, right? How well do you serve your customer? And so, to me, the V twenty two was a much better service platform you know I, I can i can get the marine there faster i can get him there with more of his gear i uh, have a lot more options to be able to help him uh do his job uh than i could in a helicopter right and then and then if you're hurt if you're hurt you want to be on an osprey because i'm flying as fast as that thing will go to get that marine to help right and that's at 240 250 knots vice you know maybe 120 maybe 130 you know that's like, significant yeah, yeah it, it's it's a game changer. You know, like if you're bleeding out, you want to be on an Osprey every single day, every single time. Um, you know, so we think of it in terms of of that and what you provide to the infantry, it's it's hands down um, a better platform, you know. That's that's some really great insight. Uh, so you come back from Afghanistan and then in 2013, you're selected to serve as a pilot with Marine Helicopter Squadron 1 commonly known as HMX-1. Can you provide our listeners with some insight into the mission of HMX-1? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, HMX-1, the X stands for experimental. So in the in the one was, it was the first uh, helicopter squadron in the Marine Corps. Um, and it was, uh, you know, stood up to basically test helicopter technology, you know, around the, you know, pre-Vietnam era to see how the Marine Corps could really use it. And so, um, really instrumental squadron in uh, in Marine Corps assault support and helicopter technology. And then there at some point after, as the helicopter technology was proven, you know, it was a way to be able to, you know, somebody thought, hey, you know, we can move the president in and out of uh, the White House, you know, without having to use, uh, you know, the car and, you know, different types of things. And, and so at that point, it was like, well, uh, you know, who are we going to get to do this? And it, at first, they the Air Force was a little bit involved in the, in the Army, and then eventually, um, you know, the Marine Corps kind of came in in Marine fashion and did it a little bit, a little bit more professionally, and you know, maybe with a little bit more propaganda that was it was just you know a little bit better suited to 
the situation. And so then they took over the um, presidential mission to be able to move the president around as, as he required for, you know, his, his day-to-day, you know, mission that he does. And so whenever I went to HMX uh, one, they were again, moving away from the helicopter assault support, the helicopter support to the V-22 or the, uh, the staff support. So the, the white tops, which the the president flies in, they are still helicopters. But as far as you know, transporting all of his staff and the Secret Service and different supporting elements, they now fly all of those people in Ospreys. And so I was sort of part of that transition there at HMX One. Very cool. What and obviously a you know an, an epic and critically important mission one that ranks you know chief amongst all of the really important things that marines get to do um but what what was the impetus for your interest in serving on the presidential detail at hmx1 and then what what was it like being an in, in hmx1 pilot versus having having been a pilot downrange uh in support of marines on the ground yeah good question i I'd spent six years in that, uh, in HMM and then VMM 365 and, you know, deployed and, um, you know, I was kind of looking for a little bit of a break, uh, in one of the, um, senior officers that I had deployed with at, uh, at VMM 365 on my second deployment had been, had gone on to HMX one and he was, uh, you know, the ch- chief transition pilot there to the V 22. And he, uh, was looking for, for some others, uh, to come and, and join him there. And so he, he said, Hey, why don't you think about putting an application? You know, this is, it's non-deploying you'll, you'll travel a lot, but you know, you won't be deployed. And so I was kind of looking for a break and I knew that I had to go somewhere else from, you know, the fleet squadron. And so I applied, uh, you know, there for, for a couple of different reasons, just to, you know, looking for a little bit of a break and then, you know, knowing that I had to do something a little bit different than, than being in the fleet. And then when I got there, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed a, a big difference, um, it's a fantastic mission and everybody realizes that, but then because it is such a important mission, it's, you know, the tier tier one mission, very visible, um, and it's a no fail mission. So consequently you get everything that you need. So, you know, well, most Mercury units are, you know, down people, down parts, you know, they kind of make do HMX has everything all the parts, all the people, you know, everything that is supposed to be on your table of organization, you have everything. Um, and, and if you don't have it, you'll have it, you know, within a few hours or at the very latest the next day. So that's, it was neat to be a part of a unit that, you know, had the, the best people, you know, the best parts, the best mission and everything to make you succeed. And, and we so did. a bit of a departure just, from, uh, you know, the operational forces where you, it's fair to say, Rarely, if ever, are you at full TO, table of organization people, or full T, table of equipment. Yeah. Yep. Yep. uh, Always full. Yeah, pretty cool. Did you enjoy your tour there? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, my tour there was three years. Had I I been able to stay an additional fourth year, I I would have in a heartbeat, but I wasn't able to. So I I really did enjoy my time there. Yeah, it it was fantastic. Very cool. And uh, yeah, we, we wouldn't realize it until years later when we met in a more formal capacity in 2022 when we wound up in the same reserve unit. But we actually met in a, in a rather uh, informal capacity on a cool fall night 
in the, the fall of 2013, I guess you, you had just recently got to HMX-1. You were flying a detail in support of the president. I was working in rescue two. We got assigned a response ticket to support the presidential detail at the South Street Seaport in Lower Manhattan. And uh, I recognized one of the pilots, uh, JJ Millette, who I we played baseball together at Navy. And it just so happened JJ was there. You you were there, several other other Naval Academy alum, and we we took a picture in front of Rescue Two that night, um, not knowing each other at the time, and of course not, not knowing that we would serve together years later, or that you would wind up on the LUF podcast, you know, a decade plus later. But uh, but but pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I re I remember that night. That was uh, yeah, some of the some of the things that I got to do while I was at HMX One you know, you just don't get to do anywhere else. That was one of the things was be able to land on the Wall Street pad there, you know, fly around New York City. Uh, just fantastic opportunity. And and that was that was a good night. I remember that. Yeah, re really cool. And, you know, a bit of an aside, you commonly talk about the role that your Christian faith plays in your, your worldview and, um, you know, navigating life's array of, of, of challenges in, in a number of different capacities. But that particular night, it was during probably one of the most exciting seasons of my life as a, as a, as a firefighter, as a member of the FDNY, I, I just started my, my time in rescue too, which, you know, will forever rank amongst one of the most exciting periods of my life. At the same time though, I was starting to undergo a really challenging, uh, not enjoyable, uh, though important, but pretty painful time as it relates to the Marine Corps. And where like my future in the Marine Corps was literally in, in, in jeopardy. And I remember that night, you know, you talked about sometimes you just like that faith, that trust, it just says, okay, I'm precisely where God wants me to be. I don't necessarily understand why, or I don't necessarily like it, but I'm precisely where I'm, I'm supposed to be. And that yeah. night I'm standing there in my gear, brand new rescue two front piece. And I'm looking at six Naval Academy graduates, one of whom I played baseball with. They just flew the president in. In the back of my mind, I'm like keenly aware of the fact that like my future as a Marine is in, is in jeopardy and I can't make sense of it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like personally heartbreaking, but I had this moment where I'm like of clarity where I'm like, look, man, just, just trust God. Like everything's going to be okay. Like, you know, you're, you're looking at some of your comrades, looking at a guy you played baseball with many years ago, never having an idea that, that you know, that I would get to do the sorts of things I've been able to do. It's like, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. Really, really, uh, really cool. And, you know, even better that we, we took a, we took a picture together that, that night. And then years later, we wind up in the same unit. You mentioned ASMX one. I mentioned, mentioned the, uh, kind of like chance encounter and you're like, Hey, I think I was there. Sure enough. There you, uh, th there you were pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's fantastic. I, you know, have several of those moments too, where you just, you know, that God, God just has it all in his hands, you know, no matter, no matter what the circumstances on the ground may be, and you can just take comfort in that. And, um, yeah, that's, that's so important. So important to me. Yeah, absolutely. So then in 2016, after, after a three-year tour flying the president and presidential detail, you returned to the Naval Academy, but this time as an instructor for several years, uh, kind of curious as an alum, how had your perspective on the role and value of USNA changed 
in, in the time that you, you know, in, in the time that you have been gone? You know, I, I was so, so thankful again, you know, to the Lord for just providing <laughs> that how I got back to the Academy again, um, being at HMX one, I wasn't quite ready to go back to the fleet. And there was an HMX alum that went on to the Naval Academy. And so I kind of hit him up. I was like, Hey, any chance you might be able to get me over there? And he's like, yeah, I just put in this application. Um, and so, you know, the Lord provided a path for me to get there. I wasn't quite ready to go back to the fleet yet, my family and, and everything. And, and so I was just so thankful and blessed to be able to, to go back there again, and then to be able to um, go there as, you know, initially as a leadership instructor, uh, teaching uh, plebe leadership or a uh, freshman leadership. And uh, um, I think, I think that like, you know, my perspective changed and it didn't, I was still really thankful for the institution. And I believed in the mission that, um, you know, we, we memorized, you know, to develop midshipmen morally, mentally, and physically. Right. And, and just to be, to be a part of that was so, such a blessing. It's such, it's such an honor. And, and to be in my mind, a part of one of the best pieces of the curriculum at the Naval Academy, you know, being in the leadership department, you know, I would tell my, my students, I'd say, Hey, you can go anywhere and get algebra. You can go to any school and get physics. You can go to any place and get all of the classes that you're learning. I was like, this is one of the only institutions where you can come and somebody that is experienced in leading in the most austere environments is going to teach you about leadership, you know? And, and so you know, the Naval Academy, you know, I think being there as an alum, you understand that it's kind of a curious beast and it's different on each day. And depending on who you ask, you know, is, is it a football school? You know, is it, is it a, a service academy? Is it, you know, a, a leadership laboratory? Is it, um, you know, just another college, you know, and, and on any given day, it might be every single one of those or, or none of them, you know, and then it depends on who you're asking and what their frame of reference is that day. I think as a Marine and a Marine instructor there, you sort of kind of have that, that overall mission and what you're trying to do. And, and each time you interface with midshipmen, you're like, I get to build, try and build a piece into this person that is going to affect the lives of so many other people that they're going to touch and lead. And um, yeah, it was just, it was a fantastic blessing to be able to be a part of that. Yeah. Thank you for that. I really love how you, how you, you framed the investment that you're making in, you know, our, our Navy and Marine Corps future leaders. Speaking of leadership development, during your time there, you would play an influential role or have an influential role in the selection of Marine officers, uh, which I ha imagine had to be fulfilling. I'm, I'm curious what, from your personal perspective, what attributes, traits, and characteristics did you weigh more heavily uh, in assessing midshipmen who had expressed interest in serving as Marine Corps officers. I think that that's really important. And it's like um, all the Marines on the yard, both, you know, officer and enlisted uh, that are there kind of really took that responsibility very heavily. You know, it was, it, we all understood that, that, you know, we are selecting, you know, the, the core of the next, the leaders of the Marine Corps. Right. And so it's like, we have to do, do this and we have to do it right. And so, you know, we looked for all of those things, um, you know, that, that, um, make a good Marine officer, you know, like 
you know, selflessness and, and hard work and, um, character and, uh, you know, physicality and, you know, those things. And, and it's like, we, we would run a board, you know, and, and in that board, it's like every Marine had, a, had a say, you know, and, and we, we tried to get a comprehensive look at each Marine officer candidate. Cause that's how we, we viewed them. You know, these midshipmen are not going to go to OCS, you know, this is, this is their screening. You know, we've got four years to screen them. So we'd look at all four years and like, you know, Hey, what are they getting in trouble for? You know, how are they doing in their classes? How are they, you know, showing up on the, on the athletic field? How are they showing up in, you know, in respect for uh, the chain of command and, you know, their company officer and, you know, their teammates and all kinds of things. And so all of that would play in and, and every Marine on the yard had a say, you know, and so we, we put out the list and if any Marine had a question about a student would be like, heck, I, I question the validity of this student. We need to talk about them. We would look at all of those things and each Marine had a say in, you know, if, if they had a question about a, a midshipman, they would bring that up and say, hey, I, I question either, you know, the physicality or the character or, you know, um, the work ethic or, you know, these types of things. And so we definitely took the responsibility seriously to try and put out, you know, put forth the best candidates to be Marine officers. Appreciate that insight. Uh, I would like to circle back to your, your Christian faith for, for a moment and kind of how it, it served to shape your, your view on leadership, risk, and, and resilience. You know, those of you who, who serve with you uh, know generally pretty quickly that your, your Christian faith is, is at the core of how you lead and serve as a Marine officer, as well as as a husband, father, and more broadly, citizen. Curious how your, your faith shaped your view of risk and resilience during wartime in one of the military's most dangerous occupational fields, aviation. Of course, this is, this includes the transition uh, from the 46 in, in, into the Osprey. And I would assume, you know, m many in our listening audience are loosely familiar with the fact that the, uh, the Osprey had, to put it mildly, a, a, a bit of a choppy rollout, you know, from a, from a safety perspective. In its, in its early years in its infancy in the Marine Corps. But how did your how does your Christian faith, you know, kind of shape your views on on risk and, and resilience? I think as far as um as far as risk, I I never really thought about dying too much. Um I knew that it was kind of always possible, but it never really scared me, you know, believing that Jesus died for me and uh to bring me to the Father. I think I know where I'm going. You know, I I know what my eventuality is. And so dying is not really like a, a thing for me. You know, it doesn't, um, it doesn't hold any fear in and of itself. Painfully dying is, is something that I would rather not do. But, uh, you know, the dying in and of itself was something that I never really considered as far as um, something that worried me, you know, I, uh, I, I wanted my family to be able to be taken care of. And so I took, you know, measures to try and do that as, as best as I could, if, if something were to happen to me, and then again, trusting that the Lord, you know, would take care of them too. You know, I think the harder thing to do really is to, to live, right? Uh, if you don't fear death, the dying would be the easy part. Living, you know, the resiliency, I think, is is probably the, the thing that I, I work through the most in terms of, you know, you'll have various emotions where, you know, you're, you're mad at something or you're, you're, you're frustrated or you're scared. It's sort of recentering 
you know, being able to recenter myself and say, like, like you did, you talked about out there when you, you first joined Rescue 2, like, okay, I know God's in control. I know that he has a plan. And though I can't see right now what's going on, I, I trust him and I believe. And, uh, and then you, you kind of come out the other side of those things and you, you look back and you're like, yeah, he, he had it all the whole time. And then, and then that sort of informs the next time, because there's, there's always going to be a next time, you know, we're, we're human and we, we go through things and we suffer. And it's part of that process that I think that the Lord brings us through to, to draw us near to himself. And so, you know, all of those things that I've experienced up to this point, I think have built resilience and faith for the next time, you know, when, when hard times are going to come my way, you know, cause I, I think that they will, but you know, the Lord, I think has prepared me through, through all of the things that we've, we've talked about, you know, through, through the Academy and getting through and through flight school and getting through and through, you know, deployments and getting through and, and, you know, trying to, you know, understand how to, to be a husband and a father and, you know, and a Marine and, and, uh, all of those things, you know, are, are difficult, really, really difficult, but, um, God in his grace provides. And so, yeah, it's, um, that resilience and living, I think is the hard part, but God's grace is enough and, and it will be. I appreciate that. So, so building on the importance of your, your faith and family, 2019, you make a, a pretty important decision, certainly an unconventional one from a conventional perspective, and that you elect to leave the active duty component of the Marine Corps with 15 years of service. You're, you're only a few years re removed from re retirement and the ability to collect a, a pension, but you elect to leave the, the service or at least the active duty component and you transition into the civilian sector you know, in the, in the Marine Corps reserves, one might argue, actually probably many would argue that that's a pretty bold move. What, what was the impetus for, for that decision? Yeah. Yeah. Many, many of them, they had a different word and it wasn't bold. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I, I got a lot of like, you know, what are you doing? And you know, that, that's a, a really fair question. Um, because yeah, you, you're like five years, you know, and, and I, you know, when you turn around five years, it's gone in a heartbeat. And, and I thought, you know, I can do anything for five years. Um, but at the time, uh, in 2019, I was coming up on the end of my tour there at the Academy. So I had gone from HMX one to the Naval Academy and, um, you know, through those six years in my first squadron, you know, I'd put my family through a lot. And there was a, a lot of healing that needed to be done uh, within my family. And when I had talked to the monitor ab about my next steps leaving the academy, it was like, yeah, you're going back to the fleet. Here's the squadron you're going to. And this is their deployment schedule. And and it's like, I just saw it as a meat grinder for my family. Because you all know when, when you're there and as you move on up in rank and responsibility, you belong more and more to the Marine Corps and the Marines. And that's the way that it should be. You know, like the Marines need you. That's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. So I took a look at that option and I, I looked at my oldest daughter and she was 12 years old. And I thought five years isn't a long time for me. Like, but in five years, she's going to be 17 and I'm going to miss all of that. And, and what if she, what if she really needs me and I'm not there for her? 
you know, and I thought if I deploy and I save lives and I do whatever I'm going to do for the Marine Corps, let's, let's just pretend I'm the best Marine aviator ever. Right. Um, and I fail her, I would have known that I would have been a failure as a, as a father. And, and it's like, I can't, I can't stand before God and say, like, I failed in the first mission that you gave me. And so, so yeah, I just felt, I felt like God was, was just leading me away from active duty. And, and it was really scary. I mean, I, you know, you add up the numbers and, and you're, you're in the millions of dollars that you're, that you're giving up. And so it doesn't seem to make financial sense or maybe even career sense, but I just knew that, that that's what was, what the Lord had for us. You know, I didn't know. I felt the leading. I felt like that's the way I was supposed to go. It was really scary, but the Lord just uh, really, you know, provided for me. He sent, you know, the same, the same officer that got me uh, an application and into HMX one had then since moved on and went to Boeing. And, and he like dropped me a text was like, Hey, you know, do you want a job? And so, you know, the Lord just provided the smooth path. I, you know, moved right over to Boeing. I was, I think, you know, the, the shortest time that you can transition out of active duty is 90 days. It was like 90 days to the day, you know, and, uh, and I went to work for Boeing there in Philadelphia and, uh, and so we just moved right, right up from Maryland, um, from the Naval Academy there and then up to Philadelphia. Uh, and I spent a year there working for Boeing, but yeah, that was a, that was a really scary time. Um, just in terms of like, man, am I doing, am I doing the right thing? I feel like this is where God's moving me. I know that I have to be able to be here for my family. And it was just really interesting, like looking back on that, you know, it was like, you know, right on the the foothills of COVID um, and and over the last five years, because actually this May, I would have been able to retire, um, you know, uh, it's been five years almost since then. And I look back over those those years, my daughter is about to turn 17. She actually turned 17 on Friday. And, uh, you know, I've been able to spend so much time with my kids. And, you know, during the COVID, I was working from home for, you know, nearly two years. Um, and just being able to have that impact um, in their lives. And she's, she's doing fantastic. And all of my kids are just doing really, really well. And so just seeing God's provision for me and for my family through this time has been, been really, really amazing. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of one of those things that I'll be able to look back and say, God is faithful. And so when the next hard thing comes, I'll be able to say God is faithful and, and, and we're going to make it. So, yeah. Really appreciate you sharing that. Certainly inspiration for, for me who entered the ranks of fatherhood, you know, several, several years after, after you did and a much, and a much earlier in, in my journey, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a real reminder that, uh, that we're, we're to conduct ourselves with, with honor at work as, as leaders and be willing to take risk. But I, I think it also reminds us too that we have a responsibility to uh, sometimes take take risk and do things that are uncomfortable because they're in the best interest to those at, at, at home. And uh, you, you didn't use the word, you didn't explicitly use the word convicted or conviction. But if I had to, if I had to reduce everything you just, you just shared, to one word that's that's the word that i would associate with what you just shared i really appreciate all that yeah yeah absolutely so you you decide or like to leave active duty to have some more time dedicated and devoted to your, your your family upon transitioning leaving the active duty component you transition to the reserves and then you go to work for boeing 
and then more recently BAE Systems, where you now work as a business development manager for the heads-up and helmet-mounted display technology. Uh, we spoke earlier in the conversation about human factors and, and performance. I, I kind of like to, us to wrap up our conversation today with you offering perhaps one human factors win as it relates to military aviation, having been on the operator side and now on the support side and perhaps one cautionary tale resulting from the lack of attention to human factors in aviation. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, as far as um, uh, human factors win, um, you, you know, there's a lot of a lot of ongoing efforts. You know, I mentioned, you know, landing the Osprey in the dust in the night and and what a an intense task that is. There has been ongoing efforts to be able to to upgrade software to put in, you know, instrumentation fixes and then as well as uh, heads up display fixes in the Osprey to be able to, you know, more successfully land the aircraft in austere environments. And so those those fixes are currently underway. And I think, you know, really good win to where, you know, they can take a lot of the human factor that could introduce errors and mitigate that, you know, and I think, I think the more that, that we can do that, the better. I think, um, you know, I've often said that a military aircraft is not designed to be hard to fly because flying the aircraft is not the mission. The mission is outside of actually piloting the craft, you know, that needs to be as easy as possible because, you know, you've got to shoot, move and communicate, right. In terms of, you know, being in the air. So the easier that you can make the aircraft to fly and, and the less you have to think about that, the more you can focus on the mission. And so, you know, I would say that that is a, is a, is a good win and the efforts are still ongoing. It's not complete yet. As far as, uh, you know, a failure, I think it's the acquisitions process, I think is, is, uh, you know, kind of stands in the way sometimes of, of getting the right gear to the right people at the right times. Um, and it, it's hard because uh, of all of the things wrapped up in, in the industry and the military acquisitions process within our, our country as it stands. I think there's just some things that stand in the way of, you know, there's, there's a good solution to take care of a factor that is caused, you know, by, by the human interaction with machine and, uh, you know, battlefield, but we can't get that solution to the warfighter because of, you know, red tape and bureaucracy. You know, I don't have a good solution for it. I, I don't think anybody does, otherwise it would be implemented, but it's just kind of one of those things that we're constantly working through. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's fair to say that my beloved our FDNY American fire service is, is perhaps late to the human performance, human factors game or arena. But one of the things that, uh, one of the things I, I believe to be true is that much of the technology that's designed and developed, implemented, iterated in, in military and in, in aviation, a lot of it could positively influence and shape the equipment that we use in the future in the fire service. So, so kind of at this point in my professional life, though I have less of a vested interest in in the military's uh, in the military's use of this technology as an operator, I, I'm you know confident and, and we're at a minimum optimistic that much of what can is you know is is developed and are designed to develop and implemented in the military at some point is going to be a value. Uh, in, in the first responder yeah. community, you know, in law enforcement. 
fire service, you know, na navigating it at night or more accurately during periods of, of low to limited visibility or zero visibility is, is something that, you know, one of the shared challenges between you guys in, in, in aviation and those of us crawling around a fire building trying to make sense of, of, of orientation. You know, kind of with the belief that if you guys if you guys are winning, that ultimately it's it's going to only enhance our capability set in the future too. So I appreciate that. I'd like to close the conversation today or or wrap up with a a rapid fire of sorts. Just curious, like instinctively, intuitively, where where you land? What's your favorite book? So many. Uh, you know, I guess outside outside of the the Bible, I think you know a couple of really good books I've read are um, the mission and the mission, the men and me. Uh, by uh, by Pete Blaber, fantastic leadership uh, story there, and then you know Gates of Fire, it kind of ranks up there. It's, it's a good book, and then another one uh, by Stephen Pressfield, uh, Man at Arms, I think is a is a really good one. Uh, so I know that's not one, that's three, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot there. There's there's some some really good books, uh, really good books that I like. All right, so you mentioned the Bible favorite verse or passage from scripture oh man again there's so many i think one of one of one of the ones that comes to mind is you know whenever i was young and, and in my teenage years my dad would he you know i'd say dad you know i just i, I don't know what god wants me to do with my life you know i want to i want to know what god wants me to do and he's like he's like oh it's easy he's like i got that he's like it's micah 6 8 and i was like what he's like yeah micah 6 8 says, and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Um, and I, I just, I like that because it's so, it just covers so many things, you know, if, if you're wondering what to do, well, what's the just thing to do? You know, what's the merciful thing to do? And often those things stand in opposition to each other. And so you need the Lord's help to, to work through it. And that's where you got to be humble and walk with God to know how to, how to do that. So. Thank you. Favorite movie? Oof. Oh, man. You know what? There's a lot, but I think one that I've seen recently that I really liked was Hacksaw Ridge. Just a, a fantastic uh, story there. Yeah. That's, yeah just that's perseverance and conviction. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, found found a way to serve in an unconventional fashion, but, uh, you know, obviously the results speak for themselves. Uh, favorite podcast? Man. Uh, leadership under fire, you know, it's a course, um, I, you know, uh, uh, you know, to be honest, like I, I haven't partaken in too many podcasts, uh, but, um, uh, the order of man is a pretty good one, um, that I, that I've frequented, uh, you know, quite a bit that, you know, he's, he's got like a pretty cool mantra, you know, that, that a man is designed to be a protector a provider and a presider and um uh you know he kind of expounds on those things throughout the podcast in different ways in different days but um i found found it really instructive and and helpful i think in my in my journey okay appreciate that favorite marine and or military leader oh um i see oh man there's so many, so many, uh, I just come back to Chesty Polar and just, you know, some of the, the action that he took there at, at, um, at Chosen in, in the Korean war, 
um, and his staff, you know, some of his staff, uh, kind of when you read about the things that they did, um, just fantastic. And, and just the leadership, the overall tone that he provided, you know, it's like, Hey, we're, we're not surrounded. We're just attacking in a different direction. You know, we're surrounded that simplifies things. You know, it's just, it's kind of just that, that overall Marine attitude. That's like, of course I'm winning, <laughs> you know, right. Uh, uh, regardless, you know, don't, don't let the facts get in the way. I think it's, it, it's pretty fantastic. So. Yeah. Awesome. Favorite non-military. I like Winston Churchill. I think, uh, you know, for a lot of kind of the same reasons of just, you know, his, his faith, his conviction, um, and just, uh, you know, believing that he was doing the right thing, you know, and he, he stood against, you know, a lot of his colleagues and, and peers and, you know, the things that he was able to pull off just by strength of character are incredible. Um, you know, in a time when, um, you know, the world yeah, literally could have been plunged into darkness. It's like, he's one of those, those folks that stood on the wall. Yeah. Really, really inspiring. Absolutely. And then the final rapid fire, what's your favorite thing or activity to do with your kids? I like to travel with them. I like to, and by traveling, I mean, not just, uh, you know, going places. Well, that includes, it includes it for sure, but, but doing things with them where they get to do something new or get to try something new and just see them learn something, see them smile about, um, you know, whatever it is that, that we happen to be doing, I think is, is one of my favorite things just to see them, see them grow, see them learn is I think, I think one of my favorite things. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking time out of your, your, your active schedule. We got a lot on your plate between the Marine Corps, kids, church, community, really appreciate and appreciate you taking time out of your schedule uh, and having this conversation with me today. I'm confident that our listeners will, will benefit from, from perspective on leadership, performance, faith, risk, and a number of other important topics. And, uh, you know, I, I've really enjoyed too get, getting to serve with you the, the last few years. You know, I'm, I'm a better, better Marine and, and, uh, uh, hopefully a, a better leader and importantly in a better gotten to know, know you. And I, I really appreciate and value our friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. And thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's been really fantastic and to be able to work with you and, and, uh, to share some of your story as well, you know, definitely one of those, the, the beacons that shows, uh, the faithfulness of God. And that is, is so important um, and such a blessing to me uh, as well. So thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of, of Leadership Under Fire. It's, uh, it's highly valuable to me. Thank you. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.